So the significance of Passover. So Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples every, um, well, for the last three years of his life. Um, he celebrated with his family for the first 30 years of his life. Um, even as a baby, he would have celebrated because Passover is a joyous time for the, for the, for the Jews and for you know, even, even now and in the past because what this, the Passover was was the remembrance of what God had done for the people. It was a family celebration occasion. It wasn't, I mean, sometimes when we have communion, we make it all solemn and dreary and put, put heavy, heavy weight on ourselves. And it does need to be taken seriously, but it is also a joyous occasion. So we need to remember both. Um, so um, it wasn't a coincidence that Jesus died at Passover, by the way, um, because God doesn't do coincidences. He does God incidences. And so the timing of when Jesus died for us is not a coincidence. God knew it. He planned it. Even before the foundation of the world, he said, okay, I'll do this at this point, this at this point, and he mapped it all out. So God isn't surprised at the timings. Um, so um, let's read 1 Corinthians 5, 7 to 8. And it's going to appear on your screens as if by magic. <laughs> and I can't read it from here, so I'll read it from here. So get rid of the old yeast by removing the wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. Um, so part of the, the, um, the Passover um, that the Jews celebrate is they have unleavened bread only during that week. Now, unleavened bread just means it's made without yeast. So it doesn't rise very much. It's probably sort of like a chapati type thing. <laughs> maybe a bit more, more like a naan bread maybe, probably, um, in terms of its thickness. Um, um, and that was made um, without the yeast because the Israelites would not have had time to wait for the dough to rise before they had to leave Israel, before they had to leave Egypt. So they made it with unleavened bread, and then God instituted a week after Passover, which is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they only eat this kind of bread for the whole week. Um, so, um, and it's, it's a way of identifying that actually the old needs to go, the new needs to come in. But to understand Passover properly, we need to perhaps look back into the Old Testament as to why Passover was introduced in the first place. Um, now, most of us will probably have heard um, about the Egyptians, uh, sorry, about the Israelites in Egypt. Um, they went there with, um, when Joseph was second to the Pharaoh in a time of great famine. Um, there were about 400 Israelites who went to Egypt at that time. It's a fair chunk, because um, there was, Joseph, there was um, Jacob and his other sons and their wives and their children and their servants and possibly even some of them, they might even have had slaves themselves. So, so suddenly 400 people descend on, on a... On, on, on you to visit. That's, that's quite a large chunk to fit around the dining room table, isn't it? <laughs> but because of what, um, how Joseph had um, helped Pharaoh prepare for this famine time, the Israelites were allowed to settle in a choice piece of land um, called Goshen. Um, and there they stayed. When the famine finished, they continued to stay. They didn't sort of then wander back to Canaan and say, well, this is the land God promised us. They said, well, okay, we'll stay here. It's a nice land. It's pleasant. It's Fertile, it's got lots of nice things going for it. But over time, people 
forgot what was happening. The Pharaoh died and Joseph died and Jacob died and all the others died and their grandchildren died and the Israelites prospered in numbers. They grew larger and larger. Um, and of course the Israelites then forgot about the debt they owed to Joseph and they forgot about the debt they owed to God and they looked at the people, these foreigners in their midst and they became scared. They said, one of these days, these people are going to overthrow our Pharaoh and, and bring in their own rule, their own reign. They're going to do their own thing, and it's not going to be good for us. So they enslaved the people and uh, made them do work for them. Um, but God had made a promise to Abraham, um, which he then ratified with Isaac and then with Jacob. And he'd said to them, I will give you this land. This is when Abraham was in, was in the land of Canaan. So God said, I will give you the land for your inheritance. After about 400 years of the Israelites being in Egypt, they were sort of suffering in their slavery and they called out to God. And God remembered this promise. Not that God forgets it, but, <laughs> but God um, said, well, now is the time to act. Um, because the people were ready for him at that point. Prior to that, I don't think they were, they, they were that ready. Um, and we can pick the story up um, Exodus 2:23 to 25. So um, it says, uh, years passed and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. Um, so he sent Moses. Um, now Moses was actually an Israelite who'd been, he'd been brought up in the court of the Pharaoh. Because as a baby, he was put on the river in these little Moses baskets. That's why we call them Moses baskets these days. <laughs> and, and the king's Pharaoh's daughter found him in the river and took him to be her own. So he'd been brought up as a prince of Egypt. I don't know if anyone's ever seen that, that the cartoon film, Prince of Egypt. So he'd been brought up as brother to the next Pharaoh. Um, so he wasn't, um, he wasn't an outsider. He was family. So he would have known all the ways of the Egyptian court. He would have worshipped the Egyptian gods. But he also knew that he was different. Because I, I do believe that um, he would have known that he was actually an Israelite. Um, but when he was probably about 40, he was out and about and he saw how, God, how the, the, the Egyptians were mistreating the Israelites. And I think at that point, God awakened in him something. And he said, no, this isn't right. This needs to be sorted out. Unfortunately, he tried to do it his own way, which didn't work out. Um, as we know, when we do things our own way, it doesn't work out. We can often make the situation worse rather than better. Um, so it, it's always a lesson to us to come to God first, but still the next time something goes wrong, we try and do it our own way and wonder why it gets worse again. <laughs> so anyway, Moses then went off to the desert 40 years, spent time um, with God because he was a shepherd. He didn't have a lot of people to talk to apart from God. Sheep don't answer back, by the way. <laughs> um, so he then spent those next 40 years soaking in God's presence, learning God's ways, looking at the wonder of creation every day, which is what tells us that God exists. And after 40 years, God said, I'm going to send you back and you're going to speak to Pharaoh. Now, the Pharaoh that was on the throne then was probably the chap that Moses grew up with as a brother. So he knew Pharaoh really well. It wasn't a stranger to him. Could very well have been a brother, or maybe um, if, if the Pharaoh had been short-lived, it might have been sort of a younger Pharaoh, but it was one he would have known until he was 40. So he wasn't a stranger. 
So now Moses had this job to go back to Pharaoh and say, you know, God said. And can you imagine going back to your own family and saying, well, God said you must do this. It's a bit daunting. And you can understand why Moses was perhaps a bit reluctant in the first place to go back. But God said, you know, I'm sending you. You are the one I've chosen to do this. Um, uh, so you might have thought the Egyptians would be happy to see the back of these interlopers, these foreigners in our land. We just want to send them back. But unfortunately, they'd kind of gotten used to having them around. A bit of handy free labor. Um, I mean, they, didn't, they didn't have to do the dirty jobs they didn't like doing because these interlopers were. So um, it didn't happen. They didn't, Pharaoh was, was, wasn't going to let them go. Um, and Moses said, you know, if you don't let them go, God's going to punish, going to bring about plagues on this land until you agree to let his people go. Um, so there were a number of plagues. We all, we all know there were 10. I'm not going to go through all of them now because that's a different sermon. Um, but the 10th one we're going to look at today, which is the death of the firstborn child, which is the last of the plagues. Um, and many of the first plagues actually, actually missed the area of Goshen, where the Israelites lived. So when we had the plague of locusts and the frogs and the flies and the blood on the river and all that kind of stuff, Goshen was still happily going along about its own business. So the people in that area, the, the Jews living in Goshen, didn't suffer most of the first nine plagues. But when we came to the tenth plague, it was going to happen across the whole land. And that's because in um, Ezekiel 20, verses 4 to 9, um, starts, um, Son of man, bring charges against them and condemn them. Make them realize how detestable the sins of their ancestors really were. Give them this message from the sovereign Lord. When I chose Israel, when I revealed myself to the descendants of Jacob in Egypt, I took a solemn oath that I, the Lord, would be their God. I took a solemn oath that day that I would bring them out of Egypt to a land I had discovered and explored for them, a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the best of all lands anywhere. Then I said, each of you get rid of the vile images you, have, you are so obsessed with. Do not defile yourself with the idols of Egypt, for I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not listen. They did not get rid of the vile images they were obsessed with. All forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I threatened to pour out my fury on them to satisfy my anger while they were still in Egypt. But I didn't do it. For I acted to protect the honor of my name. I would not allow shame to be brought on my name among the surrounding nations who saw me reveal myself by, the bringing, by bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. So the Israelites hadn't remained a separate nation, a chosen nation. They'd intermingled with a lot of the Egyptians. They'd perhaps even intermarried with them. They'd taken on the, the local customs, so a lot of the local culture. They worshipped the Egyptian gods. And so God said, you know, you, you've, you've sinned against me. And uh, we know, uh, I was going to mention it later, but it's Romans 3.23. says, for the wages of sin is death. And that's any sin, and that's for everybody. Um, we all have fallen short of... Well, actually, that's not Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 says... For we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. Um, and um, the Israelites had sinned in this particular case. So God said, you know, I'm going to bring my angel of death across the whole land. The firstborn of every sinful family will die. But he then came up with a plan. Well, he had the plan beforehand, but he then revealed his plan. So the message of Passover is that God is holy and just. So where there is sin, it needs to be obliterated. It needs to be removed. It needs to be paid for. 
The people had sinned and could not be spared from the justice of God. Um, but the message of Passover is also a message that God is merciful. Um, and he found a way their sins could be punished, but that the people themselves would not die. Um, so he would create a substitute, often known as salvation by substitution, um, to take the place of the Israelite firstborn sons, so a sacrificial lamb. Um, Exodus 12, uh, 1 to 14, gives us the plan that God had come up with. Um, and he's, um, while the Israelites were still in the land of Egypt, the Lord gave the following instructions to Moses and Aaron. From now on, this month will be the first month of the year for you. So that's this month, basically. So we're in the third month, and the Israelites, Jews, still celebrate this as the first month of the Jewish calendar. Announced to the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each family must choose a young lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. So it wasn't just one for the whole community, it was one for each household. If a family is too small to eat a whole animal, let them share with another family in the neighborhood. Divide the, fa- divide the animal according to the size of each family. So if you were two or three sharing, two or three families sharing, and one had two children, one had one child, and one was just a couple, you'd sort of divide it and say, well, you eat this, you eat this, etc. Um, the animal you select must be a one-year-old male either a sheep or a goat with no defects. So it wasn't a young lamb, it was sort of, a, sort of an older lamb, a mature lamb, a teenage lamb, <laughs> as it were maybe. <laughs> Not quite a full-grown sheep, but nearly there. Um, take special care of this chosen animal until the evening of the 14th day of this first month. So they were to keep it in their houses, feed it well, make sure it didn't get hurt or injured, um, and, and just generally look after it, make sure that it didn't develop any sicknesses as well. Then on the... Fourteenth day of the first month, the whole assembly of the community of Israel must slaughter their lamb or young goat at twilight. They are to take some of the blood of the lamb and smear it on the sides and the tops of the door door frames. Um, Of of the houses where they're going to eat animals. So if they're eating in their own house, put it on your house. But if you're going to eat next door with your neighbor, make sure their door is covered as well. Um, that same night they must roast the meat over a fire and eat it along with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. Do not eat any of the meat raw or boiled in water. The whole animal, including the head, legs and internal organs, must be roasted over a fire. This is, so that becomes the burnt offering um, because that's what God instituted way back um, when Adam and Eve first sinned. God took an animal and, and, roast, and, and um, burnt it f- for their sin. Um, um, do not leave any of it until the next morning. Burn whatever is not eaten before morning. And then we skip it down to verse 14, actually. This is a day to remember. Each year, from generation to generation, you must celebrate it as a special festival to the Lord. This is a law for all time. And as I say, to this day, the Jews still obey this. Um, they still follow... Um, the, the Passover, and they still celebrate the Passover. It, the, the way they celebrate it may or may not be slightly different to the way it was celebrated in Jesus' time, because there is some, some discussion as to whether or not they had Passover in the format it's known now when Jesus did it, but it was fairly, fairly similar, I would guess. Whatever it was, it was a time of celebration and great joy. It was a time of um, families getting together and celebrating the fact that God had rescued them. He, 
not only from Egypt, but also from having their firstborn die. So God spares the sons of the Israelites, not because they were better than the Egyptian sons, but because the blood from the sacrificial lamb of each, that each had offered. So it wasn't because they were better. It wasn't because the Israelites were worse, or the Egyptians were worse. It was because they had obeyed what God had said. They had shed blood. And it's only by the shedding of blood that sin can be removed or covered over. Um, um, there are um, Passover, as I mentioned, feast. The celebration actually lasts seven days because it's the Passover feast on the first night and then seven days of the unleavened festival, the unleavened bread, and then they meet again on the seventh night for another celebration meal. Um, but there are key points of the celebration, uh, the Passover celebration, which I think have been fairly consistent throughout all of history. Um, four cups of wine are drunk during the ceremony. Um, not just one. So, I mean, I've, if any, when I was a kid, I used to think, well, you read that passage, I think it's in Corinthians, where it says, and again after supper he took the wine. And thinking, so he must have had more wine earlier. <laughs> so now we know yeah, there's four cups. Well, each of these the four cups have, have a meaning, actually. They also have vegetables dipped in salt water, and I'll sort of mention in a short while what, what they signify. They have the, the unleavened bread, which is called matzah. Not, not to be confused with matzo biscuits, which aren't quite the same. <laughs> Although we often substitute matzo biscuits when we are using that kind of thing, within the Christian community at least, anyway. The Jewish community probably don't. Um, they have the bitter herbs, which often is, is horseradish or something like that. Um, dipped in a paste called charoset, which is made from apples, nuts, pears and wine. Um, the charoset represents the mortar that supposedly they used to build the pyramids. Um, so each of these have a significant meaning. Um, and they also, f uh, then there's a the festive meal, which because they don't eat the lamb at this point anymore, they often include other traditional Jewish foods like gefilte fish, chicken soup, um, and, and things like that. So traditional um, Hebrew dishes. Um, now, there are certain steps to how the Passover meal will go and um, they, they, they get they, they use a book called the Haggadah which is kind of like an order of service book that you would find in, in the, the Church of England where it tells you, you do this at this point this at this point the whole, the whole idea about the, the, the Passover was that the whole family was, in, was involved um, and there are about 15 steps that they would follow you know, in the process at each point I'm not going to dwell on every step because we don't need to, <laughs> and it will take us a long time. But there are a couple of things that I will sort of draw out as, as we go through. So the first step is, is the blessing. Um, so that's a, it's, a, it's a recitation of the blessing which proclaims the, the, the holiness of the holiday they're about to celebrate, or the festival they're about to celebrate. It's recited whilst they're holding the first cup of wine in their hand. Um, and this is where I need to skip to a different thing. Um, and there are... Um, the meanings of the cups. There's the cup. The first cup is the cup of deliverance. Um, the second cup is the cup of salvation, and then the third is the cup of redemption, and then there's the fourth is the cup of restoration, and there's actually a fifth cup, which isn't drunk during the Passover, known as the cup of Elijah. But I'll come back to that more towards the end. So let me just skip back to my sermon. Um, so some people. Uh, <laughs> Then there's the washing of the hands. Um, they don't 
they normally say a blessing when they wash their hands before a meal, but at this point they don't say that blessing because this night is a bit different. This is a special night. Um, then they have the appetizer, which is where they take a small piece of vegetable, like something like an onion or a potato normally, dip it into salt water. Um, and Jewish law says that certain foods must be eaten, use, certain wet foods, sorry, must be eaten using a utensil or hands that have been cleaned, cleansed, purified by washing. So purifying the hands before dipping um, is to arouse the curiosity of the children because they say, well, why is tonight different? Why did we not say the blessing when we washed our hands? So it's, it's, it's engaging the children so they become part of, part of the story. Um, um, and then there's, uh, the next step is, um, I can't, I'm not sure how to pronounce the word, but it's yachats, Y-A-C-H-A-T-Z which is where they take the three matzah. Now they have three loaves of these matzah. Um, and they sort of, I think they start sort of loosely wrapped. But then they take these, um, they take the middle matzah out and break it in two. Not necessarily in half, but they break it in two. Um, and then the larger part, they wrap up again, and then they hide somewhere in the house. And that comes into play later. Um, uh, Okay, so they, the, the, the Israelites say they split that because it talks about how God split the Red Sea for them when they went out of Egypt. But it also has a different representation in the Christian church. And for us, it represents the splitting of the, the, the breaking of the body of Jesus when he was flogged and, and had all the nastiness done to him before he was on the cross and then obviously the cross as well. So um, the, fifth play, the fifth step is where they have the second cup of wine which we've already alluded to is um, salvation. So the first cup is deliverance. The second cup now is the uh, salvation. Um, and then the children at this point, they get to ask some, ask some of the questions. Why is tonight different to all nights? Why do we do the things that we do? Why do we um, eat this leavened bread only and not normal bread? Um, and, and that helps them to retell the story of what God did for them in Egypt. Um, and then there's another washing of hands. They, they like to be clean. <laughs> um, the next step is they take the three matzah again, the, the whole one, the broken one, and then another whole one at the bottom. And they say a blessing over that. This is the normal blessing they have, which they say when they eat bread. Um, then the bottom matzah is dropped back onto the plate, and then the first two they break, and everybody takes a piece of both pieces. Not just a tiny chunk, but a, a reasonable sized chunk of each. Um, and then they dip, they, once they've eaten that, they go back to the bitter herbs, dip it in the charoset, shake it off, um, and make a blessing, and then they eat it again. Now, a lot of the food is eaten whilst they're reclining rather than sitting at the table or standing. Um, and this represents the fact that um, only the rich and the wealthy and those who had servants, basically, had the time to, and the luxury to recline at meals. Everybody else, you sort of ate and rushed off about your job. You didn't have time to sort of sit there and take your time. But at this point, they don't, they don't recline because that actually represents the bitter um, sufferings they underwent in Egypt. The tenth step is um, where they then take a sandwich of the middle matzah, now the one that had been broken, the, the, the smaller part that hasn't been hidden away, and... In the time of Jesus, they would have put a slice of roast lamb in there, along with some of the bitter herbs again, and then they would have eaten that as a sandwich. Um, 
Jews nowadays, because they can't sacrifice it at the Temple of Jerusalem, they do away without the meat. Um, so that, that was sort of the essential difference. Um, and then the matzah, so this sandwich represents um, times in our lives. The matzah moment is those times when you are, um, we experience the blessings of life. So when, when things are going well. Um, so it's a sort of a celebration when we feel truly free and liberated. The bitter herbs represent that the fact that the bitterness, difficulties happen in our lives anyway, at all times. Um, when we experience hardship of sorts. So the free person is, not, is one who is not enslaved by the, the bitter moments, but who grows from them. So you can see a lot of correlations in there between sort of, sort of the Jewish ideas, the Christian ideas, is that we don't, we don't dwell in our difficult times, but we, we allow God to help us grow in them and to grow through them. Um, and then at this point, they finally get to eat the meal, <laughs> um, which, as I say, consists of a lot of... Um, Nice food. Um, as I say, the, the Jews often don't eat roast lamb at their, at their festivals nowadays because obviously it's not been sacrificed. Um, but they will often use a boiled egg dipped in salt water to remind themselves that actually we should be eating lamb but we can't because it's not been sacrificed in the ordained manner. Um, and then they tell more stories about the Passover and what God did for the Israelites um, during the time. Um, and then we finally get to the, to the dessert which actually isn't something nice and sweet like cream cakes and stuff like that, but it's, it's the remaining part of the mats that have been hidden. The children get to go and find it, and the first one to find it probably gets a prize of some sort. Um, and then they come back, and it's called the Afokim. Um, uh, I haven't written down the spelling, so I can't tell you what it's spelled like. <laughs> um, <coughs> so the <coughs> this, for the, in, in the Jewish Passover, represents the lamb that is missing. Um, because, as I said, because they don't eat the lamb anymore because well, it's not sacrificed, this last piece of matzah represents the lamb that should be accompanying the meal, which is significant, which I'll explain in a moment. Um, and then they have the blessings after the meal. Um, they have a third cup of wine, which is the cup of redemption. And they say a blessing over that they recline and then drink the cup. Um, and then the fourth cup of wine is poured and the door is then opened, the door of the house is opened, to invite the prophet Elijah to enter. Which I think was a bit strange. <laughs> but um, Elijah was often, in the Old Testament, was prophesied as being the forerunner of, of the Messiah. Um, which is one of the reasons why Jesus referred to John the Baptist as, as Elijah, in one, in one reason. Um, so the Torah describes, the Torah is the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, um, the book of the law, describes the night of the Passover as a guarded night. It is the night when God protected and guarded the Jews from the 10th plague. So opening the door expresses faith or trust in God's protection. Because if you have your doors open, anybody can come in. So by opening them, you're saying, Lord, we trust you to protect us. Um, but also opening the door is the opportune time to welcome Elijah in. Now, Elijah is supposed to, vision, supposed to visit the circumcision of every Jewish boy and testifies that the Jews are diligent about the circumcision and that they followed the law as required. Males are permitted to eat of the lamb only if they've been circumcised. Um, and it would be the same for this, this, this um, matzah that, that's been broken. Um, so 
obviously in Egypt on that day, a lot of men were being circumcised because that tradition had largely stopped. Um, so I think a lot of men had a, an interesting meal, shall we say. <laughs> um, so then Elijah supposedly comes in to testify that actually the Jewish customs have been observed and that all the males in the room are circumcised. Um, but he's also recognized as being, um, as I say, the, the, the forerunner of um, the Messiah. Um, they, they, before they drink the wine, the fourth cup, they sing praises to the Lord, having recognized them as the Lord Almighty. They say blessings over the fourth cup, and then they drink it. Um, and then once they finish that, they, they can be sure that the, 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 the said of the service, the meal, celebration has been well received by God. So that's sort of the, the Passover in a nutshell. Um, interestingly, they don't drink the fifth cup, which is the cup of Elijah, um, which I'll come back to in a moment. Um, but we know that the blood of animals could not remove sin forever. It could only cover it for a short period. Um, Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 4. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the things to come. Not the good things themselves. So they were just it's like a reflection of what was coming. So the sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year. But they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped. For the worshippers would have been purified once for all time. Um, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually remain, reminded them of their sins year after year. Every time you're offered a sacrifice, you're reminded, oh, I'm offering it because I sin. Um, for it is not possible for the blood of bull, bulls and goats to take away sins. That's what it says in the Bible. Um, but then as the Israelites, now we sort of then relate this to how we as Christians celebrate and how it impacts us. So just as the Israelites could not stand before God faultless, neither can we. Um, this is where I mentioned Romans 3.23. For everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glory. Um, we fall, or fall short of his standard. Um, but now God's ultimate plan was unfolding. The plan that he brought about for the Egyptians bringing them out of Egypt was an interim plan to show, to point towards Jesus. Because everything in the Old Testament points towards Jesus. Everything in the New Testament points towards Jesus, who is the central focus of, of, of the Bible. Um, so what, what the Israelites experienced was a, like a physical representation of what God was going to do in the spiritual later. Um, his plan was that would, his plan that, oh yeah, the ultimate plan was unfolding. His plan that would remove the need for the sacrifices. Um, because as you say, we still had to sacrifice the animals, well, no, not we, but the Jews still sacrificed the animals. And they would still be doing it today if, if, if the Temple of Jerusalem still existed. Um, and they had the priests who could do it. Um, but the sacrifice of Jesus was a once for all. Um, it was once for everybody who lived up to that point, and it's once for everybody who lived after him. So it includes us, and it was one single sacrifice, which included the whole of mankind from beginning of time to the end of time. Um, so Mark 14, 12 to 26 is where Jesus now is celebrating Passover with his disciples. Um, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, sorry, you get thirsty when you talk a lot. 
<laughs> on the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? So Jesus sent two of them to Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. So the two disciples went into the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve. As they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, Am I the one? He replied, It is one of you twelve who is eating from this bowl with me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. Um, and some people think it might have been that Afikim layer, that, that last bit that was reserved for, for the end, um, because that, that represents the body of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And he took the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Then they sang songs and hymns and went out to the garden. But coming back to, to the four cups. So we've already had the cup of deliverance, which was right at the beginning. We've had the cup of salvation, where God um, brings a substitute for the people. Jesus probably picked up the cup of redemption and said, this is my blood for you. So that's the cup that he picks up after the meal. Um, the fourth cup, the cup of restoration. I didn't number my points. <laughs> so the cup of restoration. Some people believe that's the cup that Jesus put aside and didn't drink. Normally that is drunk during the Passover, but Jesus says, I will not drink of this wine until I return. So the restoration of God's order on the earth will happen when Jesus returns and then he will drink from the cup of restoration. Oh, my screen's gone blank. <laughs> um, and then the fifth cup, which is never drunk because it was, it was reserved for, for, for Elijah. So the Jews believed that Elijah would return and herald the coming Messiah. This cup is also sometimes known as the cup of wrath because it brings about, it will bring about the judgment of God. So after the Messiah comes, God will bring judgment on the world. Um, so they don't drink it because they've not seen Elijah yet. So Elijah hasn't come, um, according to a lot of the Jews. Um, but when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed and he said, Lord, I would wish that this cup would be taken from me. It's probably a good... good, um, good um, forgot the word. It probably means that he was talking about this cup, the cup of Elijah, the cup of, of wrath, because he said, you know, I would, if it were possible, take this cup away from me. But Jesus had to drink this cup alone because on that day on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on sin. Uh, and that um, sacrifice was made once for all. So all sin 
for every little time, for every time anyone has ever told a little white lie, or for anyone who's ever committed a major crime, that sin was paid for at that moment on the cross when Jesus drank from the, from the cup of wrath. And Jesus is the only one who has ever drunk from that cup. To this day, the Jews still do not drink from that fifth cup. It is set aside as part of the ceremony. Nobody drinks it because they're waiting for Elijah to come. But Elijah's already been because Messiah has already come. Um, so God devised a way of, to redeem people through, sub, through substitution. But this time he provided the lamb. So in the Old Testament, the people had to provide the lamb for all eternity. Now God has provided the lamb. Um, and the lamb that God provided was perfectly spotless. No blemish in him whatsoever. Um, sinless, because if, if Jesus had sinned, then he would have had died a right, a right death. His death would have been on his own case rather than for us. But because he didn't sin, his death was then able to take the, the, the consequences of our sins. Um, so, but it is not enough that the blood was shed. It has to be applied in the prescribed manner for it to be effective. So if the Jews hadn't put the blood on the doorposts and lintels of their houses in Israel, in, when they were in Egypt, the angel of death would not have passed them by. It would have come in and brought death to the firstborn sons. And that's firstborn little sons as well as firstborn adult sons. Um, so they had to apply the blood. Um, John Calvin once noted, as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race would remain useless and of no value for us. So we can't leave God outside. Now the way that we apply the blood in this day is, there's only one way, basically, and that's to recognize that Jesus is the Savior and to accept him into our lives as our Lord and our God. Um, so when the blood of the Lamb is applied to us, the angel of death then passes over us. And um, it just doesn't see us or our sins, but it sees the blood of that perfect sacrifice. And it, it doesn't enter into our house anymore. It, doesn't, it, it goes away. So the, the, it's important to note that um, whilst we're not Jews and we don't need to celebrate the Passover, it does still have a lot of correlation to the Christianity and how we fit in with the Passover. And it's, it's no surprise that Passover often coincides with Easter, even though they're different months of the year. And it's because both Passover and Easter are defined by phases of the moon. Um, I think in um, the, the Jewish calendar, the month starts at a certain phase of the moon. And then when we come to determine the date when Easter happens, it's because of the first full moon after St. George's Day or something like that. <laughs> um, but it's the same, it's the same moon that they're talking about, the same, the, same, the same phase of the same moon, which is why we often have Passover and Easter, and why, it's, why Easter changes time every year rather than being a set date, <laughs> which can be a bit confusing sometimes. Uh, so now that we understand Passover and the significance of what it means, in that whilst in the Old Testament it was a physical representation, in the New Testament, it now becomes a spiritual representation. Or not, not, well, not a representation, even. It becomes a spiritual thing. Because the Old Testament deals with the external, the appearance, the outward appearance, whereas the New Testament deals with the internal, with the spirit. 
Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law. The law was given so that people would know that they are sinful. Jesus came to show that actually I am sinless. So I have fulfilled the law, which means you're no longer under the law. You now live under grace. Um, so at this time, we're going to say our, um, have our communion, now that we understand a bit about what's going on. Um, so we've all got our cups. Um, there's a clear form at the top. You can pull that off. Um, and then that is your communion bread, which is that piece of the matzah that's been broken. And it's known as the afakim, which is the dessert. And nobody eats, as part of the Jewish um, Passover festival, nothing else is eaten after the afakim is eaten. And only those extra two cups of wine are drunk. And that's because you are to leave the celebration with the taste of the lamb in your mouth. So let's, let's, take, let's take our lamb. And uh, thank you, God, for dying for us, for being that perfect sacrifice for us, and for removing our sin forever by the breaking of your body. And then the drinking of the juice. And the juice represents the cup of redemption. And Jesus is our redemption. His blood is what has redeemed us. His blood is that one sacrifice for all time. And it is what makes us holy in the sight of God. So thank you, Lord, for your blood. That it has been, it was always part of your plan to redeem us and restore us into a right, right relationship with you. And as we take this blood today, Lord, help us to remember the significance of it in our own lives. Okay. So hopefully next time when we take communion, we'll remember so the significance of the parts of the communion service. Um, it is a time of celebration because we celebrate the fact that Jesus died, but it's also, also a time when we need to understand what it's all about and, and to be a bit serious about it and don't be flippant about coming in and celebrating it. We do need to take it seriously, but it is a joyous time because without it, we wouldn't be here. So thank you.